Good morning. It is always a blessing to be with you. Uh, several years ago, right after we got married, but before we had children, Lauren and I decided that it sounded like a good idea to drive all the way from Portland, Oregon, here to Texas. This was back when road trips, back in our lives, when road trips sounded like, you know, you could listen to some great music and have great conversations and have great, you know, experiences, visiting places you've never been before. Uh, But we were wrong. (laughs) We flew out to my parents' house and we spent about a week with them. And and the whole reason we were going to have to make this drive, or we decided it was a great idea to make this drive, was I was buying my father's used Toyota pickup. A pickup, he assured me, was an amazing automobile. And we get there, we spend the week with them, we Google the trip. It's going to take 30 hours of driving to get from Portland, Oregon, here to Texas. 30 hours of driving. So we decide the first day will be about an 8-hour day. The second day in the middle will be about a 15-hour day. And that'll still leave us 7 hours on the third and final day just to get back here. So we, we get in the car and we start driving on, on a Thursday afternoon and we're headed for Twin Falls, Idaho. We get there at 11 o'clock at night to find that the motel that the map said was going to be there isn't there. We're driving around exhausted. We find a Motel 6. They really had left the light on for us. We get into that room. We, we throw our bags down. We, we turn the lights off, fall into bed. And I'm not kidding. It is the lumpiest most uncomfortable mattress I have ever tried to sleep on in my entire life. I don't like germs very much. This bed was so uncomfortable, I got on a carpet on the ground in a Motel 6 room to try to sleep, wondering when was the last time this this has been vacuumed for real. So I was a joy to be with the next day, the 15-hour day, which starts out by trying to grab the the breakfast of champions in a McDonald's drive-thru, And Lauren rolls the window down only to discover on this amazing automobile that it won't roll back up. (laughs) So I get out of the car, muttering under my breath about my father the entire time, and I use my hands and my strength such as it is, and I manage to pull this window back up into a closed position. It's already rained on us a couple times. We have over 20 hours left to drive in. And I'm thinking, is this going to stay up or is it going to randomly go down at some point? And then, you know me, I'm a world champion worrier. So I get back in the truck and I start thinking anytime it sounds a little different than I'm used to, which is all the time because we just got in the truck and I don't know how it's supposed to sound. I want to turn the radio down and stare at the temperature gauge as if I'm going to be able to do anything if something goes wrong. Can you imagine over 20 hours with me in that state of anxiety? Those two days were the longest two days in our marriage. Ask Lauren. I mean, we got somewhere in Wyoming, we made a solemn pledge to never drive that far together ever again, ever. (laughs) Now, as we find them this morning, the Israelites are not stuck in a mid-sized pickup with a broken window, but they have been on a road trip that feels like they may never get there. They've had moments of being hungry. They've had times where they're thirsty. They've, They've had times where they're scared for their lives. There's been lots of complaining. There's been lots of no sleeping. There's been lots of arguing. 
more than anything else, I think there's been lots of worrying, wondering if they should be on this trip at all, wondering if they're ever actually going to live long enough to get wherever it is Moses and God are trying to take them. And then one day, they look up together and they see a dark silhouette of a rugged mountain in the distance. And Moses promises them that this is where they're headed. That for him, it's where it all started. It's the mountain of the Lord, Mount Sinai, where God first spoke to him. And Moses is sure. He believes. He has faith that God will speak to him again. So it's farther than it looks, but eventually they get there and they set up camp. And then they wait. They wait for Moses to have the energy to climb the mountain, to commune with God. And he's tired, he's worn out, but that's exactly what he does. He, he starts to climb up the mountain, and, and they watch him, all of them, as, as, as much as they can. And, and he goes in their eyes from being a, a man that they can tell exactly where he is and where he's going, to just a small speck, to, to then he's just a shadow, and then he's gone. They can't see him anymore, but he can certainly see them. And he looks down from that vantage point. And thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children, and flocks, and herds, responsibility. All of that living, breathing responsibility that he feels like he's, he's got to take care of because they're God's people. And he knows he can't do it on his own. And God's proven that, that God will not leave Moses on his own. And yet there's just so much there. There's so many lives and he starts to, to wonder. You know, they, they've been set free by God from, from slavery in Egypt. And now as free people, here they are at the mountain of the Lord. And they've got a choice to make. They're free to make a choice. Who are they going to be? What kind of community are they going to build? And it seems like there's all kinds of options open to them until God speaks. God interrupts Moses' thoughts. And he starts to talk about a certain kind of future that he dreams for his people to share together. A future where they will live in trust and obedience to God. That God, the creator of life, knows better than anyone else the best way to have a full and meaningful life. But it's going to have to be their choice. God will not force this way of life on them. And it's not just a way of life that's intended to impact them or bless them. God, from the beginning, wants to create a community where people freely choose to trust and obey, to have a shot at saving everybody else on the face of the earth. That's what's at stake. But they have to choose. They have to decide. Moses can't decide for them. God will not decide for them. And so Moses comes down from the mountain and he tells the people what God longs for, what God hopes for in setting them free from slavery and partnering with him in saving the world. And as they listen to that offer, as they share that redeemed and rescued imagination that God has given them, there's thousands of them. But the Bible tells us they speak with one voice when they say, we choose this way, the way of God. We want to do whatever it is you ask us to do. And when in one voice they speak, 
God listens to them and takes them at their word and then begins to speak words to them in response. They are the first words that help paint a picture of the kind of community of freedom that God wants them to live together. Open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 20. We'll start reading together in verse 1. Exodus 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words. If you had a Jewish background, you would know that while we call these the Ten Commandments, Jewish people have traditionally called these the Ten Words. And I think they see them the same way they see those words that God spoke in Genesis, let there be light. They are creative words. They make something that wasn't there before happen. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations." Of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or your daughter. Nor your male or female servant. Nor your animals. Nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested. He chose to rest on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we read these ten words, these ten commandments from God to his people. And here we are thousands of years later, centering our hearts and our minds on these ancient words. And we've got a decision to make. Do they matter? Do they still matter? I think a lot of us struggle, especially those of us who grew up in our tradition, where the focus, and I understand this, the focus is always on the gospel story and the New Testament itself. And and our use for the Old Testament is typically that it's a holding place in order for the good stuff to happen. And yet... The church has thought through the ages that the Old Testament teaches us, shows us very important things about the consistency of the character of our God. So we've got a decision to make. Do these words matter to us? Are they important to us? I think the way we struggle with it is we're really asking, do they still have authority over us? Because if we don't think they have authority over us, we tend to not think they're important. But I think that's the wrong question. Nearly, just, just about everybody in this room, there's, there's almost nobody here that, 
that has a strict cultural Jewish background, right? We're Christian people. We're reading an Old Testament that's written to the Israelites, to Jewish people, and we've got to make a decision about what kind of of relationship we're going to have to these words, how we're going to listen to them. I don't think it's a question so much of whether or not they have authority over us. I think we need to ask, what is God doing here with these words? They are commandments, but they're more than commandments. There's more content there than just you, you should and you shouldn't. There is the creator of life helping people understand what life could really be. And if God is giving that kind of advice to his people, I don't care how long ago it was, and I don't care what kind of cultural background they have. If the creator of life is saying, this is what life could be, then it would do all of us. It doesn't matter who we are. It would do us a lot of good for us to choose to listen to the advice and the insight that God is giving here. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen with open hearts. We're going to listen trying to let God shape our imaginations. Patrick Miller, a world-renowned Old Testament scholar, says that as we think about as Christian people how we might encounter the words of the Ten Commandments in a way that really impacts us, it might help for us to think of the Ten Commandments as containing within them the raw ingredients you need to build a good neighborhood you can move into. The raw ingredients it takes to create, to build a a good neighborhood that you would want to move into. I like that. That's an image that I can understand. That as I think about, okay, what, how am I going to listen? What are these words going to mean to me? That, that God wants to help us live in a good neighborhood, in, in a, a physical place that's built on a foundation of divine love, a, a kind of a village of virtue instead of the slums of slavery, a slave camp, and that there really is... Because of the Ten Commandments, there's this possibility for us to create a longitude and latitude where love is living. See, I think we we tend to miss the level of importance in the Old Testament that God puts on place. That the people put on place. On having a geographical space on the face of the earth where people are living life the way it's always been God's dream that we could live it. That there's a place you can go. There, there are streets you can walk. There, there are houses, homes that are gathered together where people are sharing this life. And I love that. I love the idea that the Ten Commandments give us a way to not just think about an ideal that we think probably won't ever happen, but, but they're the raw ingredients for what God believes could happen if, like the Israelites before us, we would choose that, that freedom to be who God says we can be if we will live in trust and obedience. The Ten Commandments give us this this chance. And I know that at first, as we read them, the Ten Commandments can seem less like a loving, compassionate song of wisdom and more like 
a repressive set of, of restrictive rules. I know that when you, you read them just grammatically, you find that it seems like there's eight things you're never allowed to do and just two things that you should always do. But when we read the Ten Commandments that way, we're, we're focusing more on how the words sound than focusing on what those words can set into motion. There's more to them than thou shalt and thou shalt not. Life in God's good neighborhood, life that's made possible when we try to live the Ten Commandments is a life that's deeply rooted and powerfully shaped by, by the wisdom that God lovingly shares with us, not to control us, but for our good. God invites us, just as he invites the Israelites into this, this creative covenant partnership where we have a shot at working with God to save everybody. But we have to choose. God is not trying to limit us. No, no, God is trying to liberate us. And not just once, but over and over again, just as God rescues the Israelites from the slavery of the Egyptians, God knows there's other forms of slavery that are going to sneak up on them that they're not going to see coming. And God knows there can't just be one exodus. There's going to have to be countless moments where God steps into their lives, where they have created small, selfish lives that are mostly about themselves. And he's going to help break them free from those small lives and help them see that they really can be a part of something that's better, that's worthwhile, that they can be a part of something they were created to always be a part of. And we're just the same. We don't need God to rescue us one time and be done with it. We need God to rescue us over and over and over again from those prisons that we create by mostly living for ourselves. And only for ourselves. And that leads me to another truth. Life in God's good neighborhood is never a life that is lived by ourselves on our own. You need more than one house to call an area a neighborhood. You need more than one person to say that you're living in a loving community. My my way of life directly affects your quality of life. Your life directly impacts mine. Think about what it's like when you live in a neighborhood with people and you start to get to know them. Think about walking to get the mail and you look out and you see a brand new couple. Just got home from the hospital. And they're carrying a baby and a car carrier, like if anything goes wrong at all, the baby might break, right? And all the bags that come home from the hospital. Don't you smile when you see a family like that? Isn't there a hope that rises in your heart anytime you see new life? And conversely, if you, if you walk out your front door and you see a foreclosure sign go up on someone else's house, isn't there a dark disappointment that settles in on your shoulders? Our lives are threaded together. We're connected in ways that we, we don't fully understand and we can't ever fully escape. I need you. You need me. We need one another. God knows this about us. The creator of life made us this way, created us this way. Life is not meant to be lived on your own. That's why God's words to us don't only have to do with how we should relate to him. No, no, no. God 
not only asks us to, to firmly place our eyes on him as our one true God, the God who we are devoted fully to, but he firmly also sets our eyes on everybody else around us, people that God gives a name. And it's a non-negotiable name. You and I don't get to change this. God says the people around you, the people in your community are your neighbors. If you look in your Bible at the opening phrase of the Ten Commandments, you'll find that the words are, I am the Lord your God. And if you look at the last phrase, you'll find your neighbor. And it makes sense because those are the two realms, those are the two relationships that that God is calling us to be good and holy and true in how we treat. God and our neighbors. But the more I think about it, the more I've looked at the the Ten Commandments, the more I feel like those aren't two separate relationships as far as God is concerned. And it might be helpful for us to think about it, not as God over here and our neighbors over here, but to place them together. I am the Lord, your God, your neighbor. Right? Maybe it's God who's moving in next door. When the family from Denver starts to empty their battered U-Haul. Maybe it's God who's moving in next door when you see a single mom and her three kids start to carry overflowing boxes in from the minivan in the driveway. Maybe it's God who's moving in next door when you see an older gentleman who just lost his wife seven months ago start to empty his car and move into a new place that doesn't feel like home yet. Maybe it's God who's moving in next door whenever a child of God moves in next door. And maybe that's what God is helping us to see if we'll let him. It doesn't matter who they may happen to be. It doesn't matter where they may happen to be from. God calls us to love others the way God has always loved and loves us and will always love us. It's non-negotiable. It's not up for debate. God wants us to create a place, a space on the earth, where we are free to make the choice to make everyone feel welcome. To make everyone feel like they have a place here. God wants us to be free from the fear that makes this kind of community impossible. If, if you and I decide that we can't really live together in the ways God says, Here, here's how I'm asking you to live together, then it would make sense that we would assume that more than anything else, this world is a scary place and we shouldn't trust anybody else. But God says, my people are creating a neighborhood here and a neighborhood over there. And maybe not just neighborhoods that are separate, but neighborhoods that come together. And then there's a town, and there's a city, and there's a place where you can go. And you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that those people are choosing, in a world that's overrun by fear, they are choosing to be free of that fear. That even if our neighbors don't look like us, or talk like us, or think like us, we will not assume that they're automatically dangerous because they're different. I am the Lord, your God, your neighbor. Maybe it's God that's moving in next door whenever anybody moves in next door. And our job is to figure out how to have the eyes of our hearts open, how to have the faith to see the truth 
That as scary as things may be in our streets and in our neighborhoods at times, God lives in our neighborhood too. God is with us. And whether we think it's safe enough yet or not, it's where we need to be. It's difficult, I know, to have the faith, to have the courage, to be the kinds of people God is saying we can be in the Ten Commandments, but there's so much at stake. The future of the world is at stake, not just the future of your family or the future of this church or even the future of our town. The future of the world is at stake. If God's people can't be free from the slavery of fear that different people are automatically bad people, if we can't figure out how to build community based on God's love and not just our strategies, what hope is there left? God's good neighborhood it's a place we belong, but it doesn't belong to us. It always belongs to God. And God says that his neighborhood, the places on the face of the earth where people will live according to his gracious reign, those places, those belong to everyone. And again, it's not negotiable you and I don't get to decide how God should have set things up and what kind of life God should have called us to. And like the Israelites before us, you and I can't be forced. We have a choice to make. We're free. But there's all kinds of slavery that can sneak up on us and we don't see it coming. God wants us to reach out to one another and to find a way to believe that there really can, through God's help, there can be places where the homes are whole and the streets are safe and there's always room for one more person at the dinner table. We belong together in that neighborhood, that neighborhood of grace. But it's bigger than that. I think God is saying that in a world where there's neighborhoods of grace... Eventually, it'll be a world of grace. A world where you never have to ask about the crime rate before you move in because there isn't one. A world where you never have to lock your doors or fear for your life. A world where no elderly parents are ever abandoned by their children. A world where no wives are ever betrayed by their husbands or husbands betrayed by their wives. A world where everyone is able and empowered to find a little peace and quiet and rest. A world where everyone keeps their promises, no matter the cost. A world where everyone loves other people more than they love themselves. This is the world God says we can live in if we'll live in trust and obedience. And it's not something we can force. It's something... We have to choose to partner with God and then see what God is able to do through willing hearts. And if we will live that way, I promise you there is a place that's going to be created. It is the place we all long for. It is a grace we all live for. It is God's good neighborhood. And the streets there have names like faith, loyalty, integrity, rest, Honor, life, fidelity, harmony, honesty, and gratitude. These are God's ten words. 
And just as God said, let there be light, he says, let there be these 10 things coming true in your life and in the places where you live. These are God's 10 words. And they aren't just any words. They are words that contain within them that amazing power to create a brand new world. A world that God says to us. We're going to get to call home. So in the next several weeks, we're going to ask ourselves, what would it look like for us to live in this place? We're going to sing together now, and as we do, shepherds and their wives will be just outside of these double doors to pray with you, to talk with you. If you're interested in, in our church family, if you're interested in, in finding out more about what it means to become a Christian, uh, they want to talk to you, visit with you. If you came this morning with anything at all, whether it's a burden or a blessing, that you want to pray about and talk about, please go to them as together we stand and sing.